0: Welcome, everyone, to Micta Radio, sponsored by MCTA, a national nonprofit organization working to make telecommunication services affordable to our members. I'm your host, John Tanner, and on today's show, we will be asking these questions. How safe are your facilities and infrastructure? Do you have a viable plan or a strategy when and if a catastrophic event occurs, such as active shooter... Sabotage, terrorism, biological or chemical threats. How do you keep your organization running, your systems fully functional if such event occurs? Are you ready for these internal or external threats? Now today, we're going to talk with some experts on why and how you should evaluate your organization's vulnerability to these type of attacks. With us today, we have Breck Susan and Breck is joining us again he just we just finished a show previously to talk about this issue in regards to educational facilities but he's here again to talk about today's topic with regarding health agencies and organizations and welcome Breck and we also have with us Lionel Harris and uh, we are going to be talking with these gentlemen about health facilities and uh, the issues that they need to examine in order to plan for and provide a good security plan. So I would like to start by just getting our listeners a little bit more familiar with you folks. And uh, Lionel, if you could tell us a little bit of your biographical information, your work experience, and how you got involved in this, this kind of thing.
1: Okay, good morning, everyone. John said my name is Lionel Harris. Uh, I'm a retired Air Force Lieutenant Colonel with just over 29 years of uh, military service. Uh, My background uh, from the day I joined the service uh, has been in security, but I guess I got really seriously interested in vulnerability risk analysis in 1999 when I was assigned to the Headquarters Air Force's Security Forces Center uh, working in the Force Protection Division. Uh, I worked there for about two, two and a half years. And after retirement, I continued to work there as a DOD contractor until 2013. Uh, I've led teams, conducted vulnerability assessments and risk analysis uh, numbering 5 to 14. And I've conducted or been part of over 185 assessments. Uh, Some of the sites have included off-base medical facilities and schools. Uh, I facilitated classes on risk analysis and helped with hand-on assessments. And I've been guest speakers at uh, man, many military conferences uh, discussing the importance of vulnerability assessments, uh, risk analysis, and and overall risk management. And in a nutshell, that sums up my work experience.
0: Thank you very much. Brett, could you review for us your expertise?
2: Yes, sir. Thank you. I appreciate you having us, having us on today, John. My career has been very similar to Lionel's. I've uh, spent most of my career in the Air Force civil engineering arena. I retired several years ago. While I was on active duty, deployed forward several times to the deserts. Predominantly, my career has been in facility maintenance, as well as the ever-important anti-terrorism force protection posture to keep the bases safe. I got my uh, license as a professional engineer Use that in many capacities, particularly when I worked with the Defense Threat Reduction Agency, doing vulnerability assessments for them. I was the structural engineer on the team, and we got to imagine blowing stuff up every time we did an assessment. While it was purely virtual, it was still a very fun and interesting activity. We also uh, tried to describe for the listener exactly how big of a blast a terrorist could possibly have and what the damage that would affect. And that's in part what we have built with strategic management associates. Same vein, similar core of people designing or trying to help people understand if you ignore a problem, just how bad it could be for you.
0: I think now is the time to try to help our listeners understand a little bit more about what we're talking about. So let's try to define this a little bit better when we we use the terms vulnerability, risk assessment and things like that it's more than just involving an active shooter. Lionel, could you tell us help us define those terms a little bit about what we're actually talking about?
1: Yes, you know, we we talk about active shooter situation, vulnerability. You know, I think vulnerability is is the overall category uh, which include active shooters and, and a lot of other uh, areas that we focus on. Internal threats, external threats, uh, safety and security, all of these things go into the vulnerability assessment process to see where your weaknesses are, uh, what type of uh, mitigation strategies you can come up with. Uh, you look at low cost, no cost, high cost. So the vulnerability assessment as the overall category, which include active shooters and just a myriad of other uh, situations.
2: Breck, would you
0: like to add anything to that?
2: Yes. I think it's also important to remember the physical plant. You know, And where we're examining the facilities that we're dealing with, both the things that we maybe can design into fixing something, but it also goes to how do you identify the threats? How do you identify the potential bad guy? Yeah, we talk about active shooter a lot, but we also talk about people who may not want to be as confrontational. Their motivation would be, let me hide something here in a corner, leave a satchel, walk away, and watch the mayhem that would ensue after they set off the device. But it, it's, this boils down to, I guess, motivation and keeping the bad guy at bay.
0: I know that you both speak to various groups across the country about this topic. I was wondering, what are the kinds of things you talk about to these groups in, in your presentations? And, and really, who are you talking to when you do these presentations? Are, are there health groups involved as well as educational groups? Breck, could we start with you?
2: Yes. I just got back from Charleston, South Carolina, yesterday. I went down to be part of the Infrastructure Security Partnership in their annual symposium. The organization there looks at the 16 critical infrastructure streams of the United States. My topic was applying the Joint Staff Integrated Vulnerability Assessment Methods to a public school, one that I have a client here in Lincoln, Nebraska. I also speak at Society of American Military Engineers functions primarily. Been involved with the symposium now for the last four years. Got to go to D.C. two weeks ago to talk about a forum on infrastructure resilience and mission assurance at George Washington University, where we're finally talking about applications of theory, as well as characterizing the various regions of the country. In my experience, we've talked, when we talk about terrorism, where we talk about active shooter. We talk about any, anything else where it's more of a man-caused disaster. People tend to be better prepared for any disaster.
0: And Lionel, have you had the opportunity to to uh, talk to groups uh, about this?
1: Oh Yes, I have. Uh, most of my uh, discussions have been in the military realm with senior leaders all the way down to the lowest air, airmen uh, in the chain. And when you know, when you talk to these Three groups I categorize as kind of three groups. You talk about different topics uh when you talk to the senior leaders, you talk about overall responsibility for the health and welfare of an organization and what their roles and responsibilities are. Uh, you know, at the thirty five thousand foot level. The second level that I always speak to is the mid level and they are responsible for supporting the upper level uh decisions and relaying to the lower level decisions, uh, what those decisions were and kind of being the go-between to bring concerns from the lower level up to the high level. And then that third category is in fact the lowest level, which is where I call it the rubber meets the road. These are the guys and ladies that actually see or would probably come into contact with any threatening situation and uh, understanding how important it is for them to be vigilant and uh you know, report up, uh be trained and educated on uh what to do now, as far as uh, schools uh school officials and health officials at the military installations, primarily the risk analysis assessments that I did, they operate basically on two different standards you know, there are state standards, there are international standards for health organizations. Uh, The same as schools, there are standards for school safety and security, both in the United States and overseas. And it's a challenge sometimes uh, working those standards uh, and rules and regulations into military plans and things like that. But, you know, it's something that's important and it has to be done. And from all the assessments that I've done and risk analysis that I've done, it seems like, you know, it has worked out pretty well. the, The health part and the Military installation part works together in conjunction and, uh, you know, have a viable plan and exercises, things like that. So I think it works out pretty good.
0: My next question is really for both of you. In your experiences, what are the most common misconceptions people have about their safety and vulnerability? Lionel, could we start with you?
1: Oh, yeah, you know, that's easy one, you know, and we hear it all the time. And I'm sure, Brent, you'll agree with probably the the two or three that I have on my list. And uh, you probably have a couple more, too. But the biggie that I hear all the time is there's no threat here. It's not going to happen here. And we know it only takes one incident for that to change. And it has happened here. uh, And it probably will happen here. The second item that that I've gotten out that we hear a lot is. I've got this big report. I've got this big set of findings. I don't have any money to implement most of the recommendations. What do I do? You know, we hear that a lot. Uh, Another factor that weighs into this is we hear that it costs too much money to implement. But most importantly, probably, is we get the excuse or you hear, you know, people will not adapt very well to these changes it will slow customer service down. It'll degrade time to get in and out of a facility. It'll reduce the amount of people, uh, or services we can provide. And you know, you always, always hear that until something happens. So, you know, that's my short list of what we hear as uh, misconceptions or the negativity for implementing findings of vulnerability assessment and risk analysis.
0: Well, Breck, I'm sure you'll you'll agree
2: with Lionel on, on those points. I wholeheartedly agree with him. I mean the, that is everything in a nutshell. but let me add, add to it. This goes to prioritization. Yeah, there's a when a disaster happens, a lot of a lot of money suddenly gets available. But the trick is, how do you convince an elected official to realize that they, the investment isn't all that big? or looking at it from the counterpoint, how do you know when something has been successful? when the measure is essentially nothing has happened. But we make, a, we make a facility that's harder, that a bad guy would look at and say, I'm going to go somewhere else. When nothing happens, life is fine. Life goes on. People tend to forget about the priority that anti-terrorism force protection is towards the top of anybody's list, or it should be. Because, yes, the idea that it won't happen here is prevalent. In fact, I asked uh, one of the presidential candidates, at an event back in December in the Council Bluffs. The issue was, for my question, was, what's the probability that an ISIS type attack could happen here in the Midwest? Wouldn't we have a higher probability of things like a Charlie Starkweather type of attack, an active shooter? And the gentleman immediately popped off a remark about the Andrew Long assassination in Memphis in 2009. This was freshly on the heels of the four Marines being shot You've got the attack that happened in Oklahoma City. Now we've got the attack that happened in San Bernardino. The realization that we are not talking about some one-off issue. We're talking about something that has happened that could very well happen again. How do you then disrupt a bad guy who might be targeting your facility? I look at the, uh, the Murrah Building bombing. I am told that they chose that building over one here in Omaha. So the targeting wasn't just limited to one town.
0: Great. All right, let's take a break now. But when we come back, we're going to be talking more specifically about healthcare organizations and agencies and what should they be doing to make their facilities safer and more secure. And more importantly, where do you start? Back in a moment. Strategic Management Associates offers a full-service human, technical, and environmental threat vulnerability assessment to mitigate your risks and ensure operational resiliency. This will help to create confidence among administrative staff, elected officials, faculty, students, and the community at large. You need to think total cost of ownership when evaluating your needs for a vulnerability assessment. The cost of strategic management services plus the investment costs in implementing any of the capital improvements suggested could be less costly than one litigation claim. You need to plan for the unthinkable. Not the possibility, but the probability. Those events that have historically occurred in your own neighborhood. Utilizing the customer's value system, strategic management associates can help ensure a positive environment through conducting a cost-benefit analysis, policy creation, revision, and training. Contact Strategic Management Associates and talk with them to learn how they can help you with a vulnerability assessment of your organization. Go to the mctetech.org website to get more information. We are back, and with us today are Breck, Will, Susan, and Lionel Harris, two experts in determining the vulnerability of institutions and organizations to violence and threats. And before we go any further, I'd like to begin this portion of the show by just summarizing the following facts. April 6, 2007, single gunman perpetrated the Virginia Tech Massacre. July twentieth, twenty 2012, 12 people killed, 59 injured in the Aurora shooting at the midnight showing in a theater. December 14, 2012, 1st graders and six adults killed during Sandy Hook elementary school shooting. December 2nd, 2015, 14 people killed and 22 injured. the San Bernardino attack. June 12, 2016 nightclub shooting in Orlando, the worst mass shooting in US history. And these are just of the few of the numerous active shooter instances that occur every year in the United States. We have a university, a movie theater, elementary school, A nightclub. And these are places most people feel safe and would never expect someone to suddenly start shooting. Now, these active shooter incidents are difficult to predict since they occur without warning and are typically over within minutes. There are, however, ways that you can help prepare your organization for an event like this and potentially save lives. And that's what we are talking about here today. But before we get into the planning and strategy stuff, I want to address an issue that points to this notion by many organizations that feel they are safe enough. Despite the shootings, there are, at least there appears to be a sentiment out there that we're okay. We've got this covered, and we're doing all we can do. So to that end, I'd like to do a little bit of role-playing with our guests, if I may, and imagine a scenario where we're sitting in a large meeting room, and on one side you have hospital CEOs because a lot about what we're talking about here today is really about healthcare agencies and institutions etc but for the sake of this role play uh, let's assume that on one side of this table there are those hospital CEOs and there are college presidents and technology directors for nonprofits etc and you gentlemen are two experts you're sitting on the opposite side of this table i'm the moderator of the group and i ask you experts please tell the representatives on the other side of this table in a persuasive manner why they need to pay more attention to how they address violence in the workplace
2: within their organizations and breck i'd like to start with you the timing is right the timing is necessary as you've just specified events can happen and continue to happen when i look at the alligator incident in disney down this month very sad event and while Nobody is culpable for much there. You have an owner that feels responsible for protecting its guests. The pain and suffering that they're about to endure possibly could have been avoided. So here we are, we're talking about workplace violence. The person in, uh, at the Pulse nightclub, he was casing the joint for weeks. He was going in and looking at the various means that he could introduce his attack. He was looking at, after targeting, examining where their shortfalls were, Assembled his material and then went in and made sure that everything was still the way it was when he did his initial assessment before he started pulling the trigger. So those events happen and continue to happen.
0: Lionel, what can you add to the conversation about how to address violence in the workplace?
2: Uh,
1: I echo Breck's uh, sentiment as well. You know, our society is changing, our society has become unpredictable. There's so much ideology and thought processes uh, out there that it it appears that we're always behind in warding threats. Uh, He mentioned the alligator attack. You know, you talked about the five uh, recent incidents that we've had. It's encumbered upon our our leaders in our hospitals, colleges, businesses, uh, and whoever might hear this presentation that planning is the key. We've got to think out of the box, We've got to use historical data. We've got to look at trends and actually seriously sit down and develop plans to address these situations. Now, will we be able to address each and every situation that may or may not come up? The question is, or the answer is no. But we've got enough data out there, enough trends, and we've got a lot of smart people out there. But we've got to take this a little bit more serious because saying it won't happen here is basically out the window because it will happen here. It's just a matter of when. And the more prepared we are to address it, the better we will be at saving lives.
0: Well, let me ask you this question that sometimes might come up in this kind of conversation or discussion about being prepared. What do you say to those who would say to you, to either one of you that, look, our organization, we have all this workplace violence prevention stuff covered in our employee handbook. How would you respond to them on that?
2: Breck. John, I would ask to, I would respond immediately. Have you tested it? Oh yeah, we've done Code Reds, we've done those emergency examinations, okay, but how in-depth have you really tested it? Have you gotten to where somebody is pointing a weapon in into training exercise at somebody and seeing how they respond? Or have you gone through your exercises and say, I'll simulate that? Anytime you, you don't fully test somebody's examination under fire, you don't know how they respond and they aren't, unless they feel the danger and perceive that if you're in a situation where you basically want to say, Daddy, make the bad man stop. Then you're not necessarily going to know how you're going to react, and you're not going to be fully prepared.
0: Ed Lionel, how would you respond to that? I know your background, you have extensive background in training and simulation. How would you respond to that point?
1: Well, you know, when I hear, you know, we've got a 100-page plan, you know, it's nice and pretty, you know, the date was dated last week. Uh, having been out on the inspection circuit, you know, I can go check out or look at a plan. And yeah, we've got a nice pretty cover dated this week, but you start reading the plan. And agencies that would support you doesn't exist anymore. So really, how current is the plan? When is the last time you actually reviewed it? When is the last time you actually uh, exercised it? Just like Brick says, that's the key to success here. Another area that's really, really important, too, are the staff or the employees. Employees and staff, we are afraid today to rat on someone, to say, hey, this person may have an issue, made these observations because we don't want to lose friendships, Uh, we're scared of repercussions. And as a result of that, a lot of situations that could have been prevented is not because society is just afraid to speak up and say something about it. But when you always look at after action reports, you say, you know, four or five people recognize these signs, uh, but didn't say anything. So, you know, that's important too. You've Got to speak up uh, when you see something out of place and you've got to train, practice, train, 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 you can never do enough. Now, a lot of time that will conflict with your mission, but you've got to dedicate some time to get all your players involved to make sure what you've written down at least is workable. It may not be perfect, but if you don't have any plan, you're dead in the water.
2: John, I'd like to add something here. I remember back to the time when I took the on-scene commander's course, the very first time that we were talking to media. Now, this was practice media. So we're actually training under actual conditions here. And why it's important? took something as innocuous as a microphone, put it in front of my face,
0: and I busted out laughing. And Lionel, I want to talk to you, uh, you mentioned to me that you had a conversation with some staff members who currently work in health agencies, and talking to them about how they felt about security and measures taken to protect the environment that they work. Can you tell us about that conversation?
1: Oh, sure, I'd be more than happy to. Uh, I had an opportunity to talk to two healthcare professionals in, that works in a medium-sized hospital and a larger hospital uh, in the state of Texas. And what shocked me talking with both of them was the fact that after my first question about security concerns in the hospital, I just went uh, right at the, the bat, told them what we were doing, what I was trying to accomplish. And both of them almost simultaneously told me that as hospital staffers, they really, really weren't that much concerned about security. Their job is to, take care and treat patients. And I just thought that would be a perfect discussion topic for us today because it is very, very important that they think about security as well. They went on to point out to me that there are protocols in place when there are mass casualty situations. The example is calling lists to get more doctors and staff in, getting the PR person or the spokesman in. And they also mentioned that there's a protocol to call in extra security if the situation warrants. And that was a perfect transition to start talking about security. And my question was, what type of security? And both of their responses, again, was primarily contract security that's unarmed, security that's been hired by security firms or by the hospital, rather. We talked about where they work, what they do, and they're primarily, they kind of chuckled and said they're there primarily for presence. They're at the front door. They're normally at the emergency room, but very seldom do you find them on the units. Uh, as I mentioned, they're not armed. And so basically, you know, they sound the alarm and make a phone call, I guess, if the situation warranted. We talked about drills. How often do they practice? And, and once again, their are drills and annual exercises, et cetera focuses on recall, triage, and take care of the patient. So I just thought in my whole 45 minutes or so conversation, we talk very, very little about security, but a lot more to what they actually do being healthcare professionals. And bottom line is they leave it up to other people to take care of them, and they basically do what they're told.
0: Lionel, did their answer surprise you?
1: I guess it did being a security professional you know in in the security professional world we expect everybody i guess to think and feel like we do so when i didn't get that answer you know i said to myself what are we thinking here what are they talking about but when you stop and think about it their mission in life is to take care of patients and they're the angels and nothing will happen to them that's the mindset because they are healthcare. they're identified and that in itself they think is okay and that's all they need but times are changing
0: Okay, well, let's move on from this point, and to continue with this role play, let's say, you know, I'm convinced. I'm a hospital CEO executive. I've sat on the other side of the table. I've just heard what you've said to me, and I'm convinced that I need to do something. Can you give me an idea of what are some of the things that I should be thinking about, the next steps kind of thing, uh, that would help me begin this process of reviewing my protocols for protecting the work environment in my organization? Breck, I'd like to start with you.
2: Certainly. I mean, we look at some of the existing attacks that you mentioned earlier in the show. The attacker is now inside the front door. And when I look at how do you prevent this type of thing from a physical perspective, you're using the building itself. I mean, you want to keep as many people at the curbside as you can. And if they get within the curbside, get to the building envelope I mean, the, the walls. Now you're looking particularly at your entry control points as your third element. And how do you keep those people at those locations until they're deemed safe? But then now in the case of like the nightclub or the school situation, they're inside the building. How do you protect your workforce? And so the various layers here, now we're looking inside the building. How do you close off a corridor? I mean, in some hospitals, your um, emergency room floors aren't available to the public. And you've got certain elevators that only, or that the public goes on and other elevators that are open to staff. So we're already thinking in those modes, enhancing the security plan, to where now if the code red goes off, how do you fully squelch something so that now people have a place to fall back to that the bad guy isn't going to be able to break into immediately?
0: Those are important steps. Lionel, I'd like to ask you in terms of next steps, when we talk about healthcare workers and agencies, uh, they are really considered to be high risk in many ways because they're exposed to, uh, well, let's say their relationship to patients or patients' families, those Folks could obviously be carrying weapons of some sort, and there are a number of risk factors for these folks, like, for example, the availability of drugs, unrestricted movement of the public, and, and sometimes training, et cetera. What would be your response in terms of next steps when they have these kinds of factors that they need to be concerned with?
1: You mentioned some of the high risk factors, you know, drug users, patients with mental issues, uh, we can even consider unemployed the stress of unemployment uh, uninsured family members with weapons in the facility uh, and this goes on and on and probably healthcare workers are subject to uh, be involved in these situations almost on a daily basis breck has mentioned some of the layered defenses you know access control visitor badging visitor identification restriction to certain areas of the hospital, and just vigilance. I'm a vigilance person. People have just got to be looking around uh, their surroundings. What is this person doing? And not be afraid to say something, to sound the alarm. It's pretty simple, I think. But we've got to be willing to do it.
0: I want to before we wrap up this conversation I want to make sure that I've given you uh, both of you a chance to say what you what you would like to say about this and as we're wrapping this up I'd like to hear from both of you if you have any other summarizing
2: thoughts of some sort about what you'd like to share with us today. As Lionel mentioned some hospital people look at security as somebody else's concern. Their job is to do triage to maintain life and health especially in that golden hour. What we saw in the San Bernardino case where a doctor was trying to roll to the site, that is laudable. But now you've got a guy who isn't necessarily worried about security and he's doing his job with patients. Somebody's gotta be protecting him. And that's a tactic and procedure that should be in your security plan because it may be an unusual situation. It may not be the norm, but that's what security plans are all about is when the abnormal happens how do you respond and are you ready to go there? And do you have a procedure in place? Do you have security that's ready to pull overwatch on the doctors when the bullets may still be flying around them?
0: Lionel, do you have any summarizing thoughts?
1: Uh, yes, I do. Craig talked about basically the scene. I like to do a little focus on uh, the hospital itself. What I would like to see is, you know, in the hospital protocols, make sure. The consideration for security is high on the list. It might not be as high as the recall for the doctors, but pretty much after that, maybe before you get to recalling the hospital spokesperson. If increased security is required, it's got to be implemented immediately. got to make sure you coordinate with the local authorities because a lot of times if they're mass casualty situations. Uh, Your local PD might be involved in that mass casualty situations, and there might be a gap in security because, you know, within minutes, and we've seen it at all the recent five or six incidents that we talked about, that the press, family members, well-wishers, nosy people will descend upon that hospital, the emergency room area, and probably other places within minutes because our social media broadcasting it allows us to do that. So security is of the essence immediately, normally before the first ambulances or vehicles that's transporting patients arrive. So that protocol has got to uh, include a recall of security, or uh, consideration for security, and break, and I think we've talked about it at nauseum, about planning and training and practicing. Those are the keys. If we do those things and be serious about what we want to do, and how we're going to do it, I think we'll be better off and in a better position to save lives.
0: Well, I'd like to thank both of you, Breck, Will Susan, and Lionel Harris, for talking with us today really about a very, very important issue. And to our listeners, if you'd like to learn more or get in touch with these experts, uh, I encourage you to call our MICTA offices and we will connect you with the experts. And thank you for listening to us today and stay tuned for more Micta Radio. Bye for now.
1: This program has been presented by MICTA. MICTA Technology Solutions for Members Nationwide.